0: Just to... from high above 107 columbia with both eyes on eagle street watching the clues clean up the confetti from last night's celebration as the new year of criminal practice began on labor day and in many of the offices today it's the first day for any number of new assistant district attorneys welcome to all of you today We are going to begin dealing with the core reasons for the admission and preclusion of trial evidence. The best evidence will rule. Let's go. The primary goal of a trial prosecutor is to make a clear, concise presentation of the evidence and to remove any confusion or uncertainty from the jurors' minds. The basic strategy employed by defense attorneys in most cases is to create a sense of uncertainty, confusion, and unanswered questions the better versed you are in the rules of evidence, the more likely it is you will be successful in maximizing the admission and effect of your proffered evidence and at the same time prevent the defense from introducing inappropriate evidence. It also assures your recognition of the availability of evidence that you might otherwise overlook. Interestingly, the basic criteria for the admissibility or preclusion of any proffered evidence are much in sync with the goal of a prosecutor the New York courts have consistently held that otherwise admissible evidence may be precluded if it will mislead or confuse the jury or unduly prejudice the opposing party. Logic dictates and the case law confirms that this is also the basis for the admissibility of evidence, making the issues clear and removing the potential for jury speculation or misunderstanding of the events. You should employ these basic tenets in support of the evidentiary arguments you make for the admission of your proffered evidence, as the Court of Appeals has held in two of its cornerstone cases addressing the admissibility of evidence. First, in the case of People v. Scarola, a 1988 Court of Appeals decision litigated by ADA Paul Rosenfeld from the Bronx DA's office, in New York, the general rule is that all relevant evidence is admissible unless its admission violates some exclusionary rule. Evidence is relevant if it has any tendency in reason to prove the evidence of any material fact. That is, it makes determination of the action more probable or less probable than it would be without the evidence. Relevant evidence can be excluded if the trial court finds that its probative value is substantially outweighed by the danger that will unfairly prejudice the other side or mislead the jury. In the second case, People v. Primo, a court of appeals decision from the year 2001, the court wrote, relevant evidence, however, is not necessarily admissible. A court may, in its discretion, exclude relevant evidence if its probative value is outweighed by the Prospect of trial delay, undue prejudice to the opposing party, confusing the issues, or misleading the jury. In affirming a conviction where the court admitted evidence proffered by the people that a police officer approached and arrested the defendant on a subway platform after recognizing him from a wanted post, the appellate division noted under the circumstances to leave the officer's actions unexplained would have placed a mystery before the jury and invited speculation. This is in the case of People v. Martinez, a First Department decision from 2012, where leave was denied by the Court of Appeals. While the defense is appropriately given great latitude in the presentation of a case, the prejudice to the People's case by the inappropriate admission of defense evidence is something a court should always consider in determining the admission of defense evidence and not just when evaluating the propriety of the admission of the People's Evidence. An important case to be aware of when dealing with these issues and attempting to introduce such evidence is the Court of Appeals' decision in People v. Morris from 2013. Among other things, the Court wrote, Given the aggressive nature of the police confrontation with defendant and the attendant risk of improper speculation by the jury, The 9-11 evidence was necessary to provide background information explaining the police actions and that its probative value outweighed the potential prejudice to the defendant. The police behaved aggressively after the stop and before they discovered the gun by singling out the defendant, grabbing him, and forcing him up against their patrol car. By specifying why the officer stopped defendant in the first instance, the 9-11 evidence allowed the jury to put this conduct In the proper context. Of utmost importance in plotting your overall evidentiary strategy is assuring that the finder of fact is given, when appropriate, the background evidence that explains the relationships and motivations of the various witnesses and the defendant, as well as evidence that clarifies the reasons for their immediate actions and completes the narrative of the events. The alleged crime often needs to be put into its proper context in order for the fact finder to be in the correct position to properly evaluate the reliability and credibility of your witness's testimony. While our goal is to keep the case clear and simple, at times the lack of surrounding details that existed before, during, and after the event may prove misleading to the jury and fatal to your case. Of special concern is explaining how and why the police acted as they did, when they were investigating the case and interacting with the defendant. When there is any aggressive physical contact by the police with the defendant or others, the specific reasons for this conduct must be presented to assure the jurors do not misperceive the officers as overly aggressive, inappropriately violent people who should not be trusted. This explanatory evidence gives the finder of fact a much greater ability to determine the reasonableness and appropriateness of the police witnesses' actions and the reliability and accuracy of their testimony. Consider the following. As litigators and jurists, we ask a jury to use their common sense. However, if the jury is precluded from hearing evidence which explains the conduct of your witnesses and the circumstances surrounding the events, the jury's common sense, though properly applied to the incomplete set of facts, will often lead to a conclusion that would be totally illogical and nonsensical if they were given all the appropriate facts. Whenever one of your witnesses is asked to tell the jury that someone told him or her, or begins to answer a question with the words, she told me, the defense attorney will jump to his or her feet with the cry of objection, hearsay. While in some situations this may be an appropriate objection, there are many others where it is not hearsay. You may introduce such evidence not for its truth, but rather to explain the state of mind of the person who said it or the person who heard it, to complete the narrative of events that followed, or as background information to make the picture of events clear to the jury and explain the people's subsequent conduct. You should not be afraid to use this hearsay-like evidence as long as you are prepared with case law and clear arguments as to why this material is admissible. One of the most common uses of this type of evidence is when the police are chasing or looking for someone, and they have a conversation with bystanders who point them in the right direction. The cornerstone case authority for the propriety of this type of evidence is People v. Tosca, a court of appeals decision from 2002. In this decision, the court wrote, the trial court did not abuse its discretion in admitting the police officer's testimony concerning an unidentified cab driver's report of a recent encounter with the armed defendant. The testimony was admitted not for its truth, but to provide background information as to how and why the police pursued and confronted the defendant. Further, trial court twice explicitly instructed the jury on the limited use it could make of this testimony and that the testimony was not to be considered proof of the uncharged crime. An example of the premise of the Tosca decision is found when we introduce 9-11 calls to trial not for the truth of their content. Now, when we introduce them for the truth of their content, we must establish a hearsay exception, which is usually one of present sense impression or excited utterance or both. There are situations where such a call does not meet the criteria for either one of these hearsay exceptions, but we may still be able to introduce the call not for the truth of its content but as background information to explain the subsequent police conduct. For example, in the case of People v. Kearney, a First Department case from 2005 with leave denied by the Court of Appeals, the trial court properly allowed the introduction of such a 9-11 call by a non-testifying caller. The court wrote, the trial court properly allowed limited testimony concerning a 9-11 call made by a non-testifying declarant with careful limiting instructions advising the jury that the tape was not admitted for its truth but as background information explaining why the police took a series of investigatory actions. Accordingly, this evidence did not violate defendant's right of confrontation. There was a legitimate non-hearsay purpose for its introduction which was necessary for the jury's understanding of the sequence of events, and it did not cause any prejudice. For more material on this subject, please be sure to check the P.E. search, and you will be able to find many additional memos and case law to help you deal with these issues. Our thanks, as always, to our crack producer and weatherman extraordinaire, Jonathan Marconi Crispino, who is not responsible for this horrible weather, hot and humid that we're suffering through on the 4th of September. To all of you out there, be well and stay ready, my friends.